Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with theologian, ethicist, educator, and Catholic social commentator, Dr. Charlie Camosi. In part one, Charlie offered his perspective on the Dobbs leak and the implications it may have for abortion politics in the U.S. In this episode, we begin by addressing revelations that Canada may now be euthanizing the poor, an issue that Charlie spoke about during his May 11th appearance on Tucker Carlson Tonight. Following this, we discuss his departure from Catholic higher education and his new position at the Creighton University School of Medicine. All right, so Charlie, welcome back to part two of our interview. I'd like to pick up with an issue you you spoke about on the uh, Tucker Carlson Tonight Show. You were speaking about euthanasia in Canada. But before getting into that issue, I really want to ask you, what's it like being on a national show like that? I know it wasn't the first time you were on it, but I was wondering if you could tell listeners, what's, what's the experience like being on a, I mean, I actually say national, an international show like Tucker Carlson Tonight? Well, it's a bit scary, first of all, right? Because you, if, if you if you let yourself think about make yourself making a mistake or um, saying something you don't mean, or somebody asks you a really difficult question and there are 3 million people watching. If you let yourself think about that, you know, it kind of, your mind goes blank. I try to, what, what they do, what they did during COVID. And I asked for this past time too, is they send this van out to your house essentially. And you can just, you can, you can get in the van. It's like its own studio. And there's like a little, there's a little table there that I always put some notes on. So if I just go blank by getting freaked out that I'm talking to 3 million people, I can just look at my notes, but on a more serious note, like I, I had some, I had some hesitation about going on the show. I'm not going to lie about that. And in fact, I reached out to you to get your advice about that and some other close trusted people in my life, because I don't agree uh, with a lot of what Tucker or his show or his writers um, say, uh, including about immigration. I think um, the church's teaching on welcoming the stranger is, is would be very highly, is very highly critical of, um, of his his show's views on these questions, but I, as I began to think about it, you and I talked about this a little bit. You know what what cable show could I go on where I wouldn't have these dramatic um, disagreements with whoever the host was? You know, I mean, I think any authentic Catholic actually who goes on any one of these shows is going to have some very serious disagreements with whoever they're on with, and so it becomes a question of you know can I, can I justify talking to 3 million people live about the horrors of killing vulnerable, economically vulnerable people via euthanasia in Canada? Cause he's one of the few, maybe only uh, serious people talking about this, covering it. And I think the answer was, was yes, but I, but I must admit having some hesitation because I don't want to be associated with, um, with his views say about immigration or other things. And just as I, if I say went on, Rachel Maddow's show, right on MSNBC. I would, I would gladly take an invitation from her to talk about, say, paid family leave or the need for uh, the right to healthcare or something like that. But I would, but I would, her stance on prenatal justice is 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 abhorrent. And but I would still, I would still want to be engaging with with someone like that. I would want to engage with someone like that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you did. Thank, so thank you. you. 
Thank, Thank you. you. All right, so let, let's get into the uh, the the topic that you that you spoke um, with Tucker on the show. So, um, on the show, you spoke with him about Canada offering or promoting. I'm not exactly sure what the right term is. Uh, euthanasia to people who are poor. And so, Charlie, what's what's the issue here, and how might this affect us in the U.S.? Yeah, it's so interesting and so revealing and so indicative of things that those of us who have been deeply opposed to physician-assisted suicide for so many years and decades now have been pointing out for so long, which is, yes, euthanasia is intrinsically evil and it should never be done and it should be illegal. But one of the, in addition to being an issue of fundamental justice and nonviolence in healthcare, especially, we shouldn't have violent healthcare, turns out, um, we should be concerned about, again, the public policy prescription. So I know some pro-lifers who disagree with me about the judgment about being intrinsically evil, who nevertheless are against it precisely because it has these policy implications that they hate. And here's one of them, right? It turns out those who are most vulnerable in the culture are most structurally coerced right. into, into being pushed into having uh, the so-called choice to kill yourself, right? And, these, and what this Spectator article that I was asked to speak about on the show mm -hmm showed was that people with these deep sensitivities to chemicals and fragrances, I guess, such that it made their lives like a living hell to be in certain kinds of housing, didn't have the resources to, to get into different housing. And rather than help these folks get into different housing, Canada has offered them physician-assisted suicide and approved them for physician-assisted suicide. So it's it's somewhere between offering and coercing, right? It's in this kind of structural coercion or here's how Canada's decided to organize itself. And the way it's decided to organize itself essentially is the poor are more likely to request physician assisted suicide than they are to get adequate housing for themselves. And that's not the kind of thing that we normally think of as coming from Canada, right? We often hear about how wonderful Canada is in terms of its social structures and support and healthcare system and all that. And there are good things about their system that I think are important to highlight, but this is just a fundamental evil, right? Let's call it what it is, evil. The fact that that we that Canada is structurally coercing its most vulnerable people to uh, request assisted suicide is deeply evil. Yeah. Speak a little bit about the the slippery slope here because and, and I'm thinking like here in the United States we had, you know, Oregon kind of started the party. Um, but we've seen in Oregon as as time has gone by, they've reduced the it used to be a 14 day waiting period between verbal Request for assisted suicide. They're they're moving that back. Um, just recently, they've dropped the the state residency requirement, and you see these. You know, it, it's people call people say it's the slippery slope. You know, you start somewhere and then you and you were kind of backsliding and making it easier and making it easier, making it easier, and you kind of see the same thing in Canada. I mean, they passed the assisted suicide and the euthanasia law. I think it was two thousand fifteen or two thousand sixteen. And just, you know, religious liberty or, or conscience rights, you know, doctors are, are forced to do this, um, right? Healthcare facilities, uh, nursing homes, and, and even Catholic nursing homes, they're forced to, uh, you know, being forced to do this or they're not going to get funding. And now you see, you know, offering or coercing people who are poor into, you know, assisted suicide or euthanasia. And I, I, I guess... It, are people not seeing this or, or, or you know, what, what does this say about our societies, both Canadian society and the U S are, are we looking at the same thing that Canada is experiencing now? And, and let me just 
see that and raise you assisted suicide for the mentally disabled, right? Oh, yeah. That's coming next yep. for Canada. Yep. Um, something you and I talked about in our last episode, we talked about um, especially uh, patients and residents with dementia, right? And how um, we're moving in that direction. And Canada is about to move in that direction in a, in a really horrific, horrific way. Um, it's interesting. I don't know if you have any theories about this. I have some, but that, that we haven't had as much, uh, slippage as we've had I, in the United States. I don't think that's because there isn't a natural progression because we've seen it in Canada. We've seen it in the Netherlands. We've seen it mm-hmm. in Belgium. We've seen it other places, but you know, Oregon has had it for, for, for decades now since the nineties. And the, what you pointed out is real, but I saw this very interesting story about them trying to go from six months where uh, essentially a physician has to say you're going to die or three physicians, whatever it is, has to say you're going to die within uh, six months to 12 months. And you know who opposed it the most? It was the uh, for people formerly known as the Hemlock Society, who now Death with Dignity, who opposed it be- precisely because they didn't want people like you and me pointing out that there's really no stable way to hold this at six months. There's really no stable way to hold it at only physical suffering included you know mental suffering and once you include mental suffering there's no really way to hold it back from people with disabilities so logical way anyway but the culture our culture has been i've been proud of us in the united states and particularly in some very blue states out by where we live you know uh new jersey just uh succumbed to it but fought it off massachusetts i think has still fought it off there are many it's, yeah they're still they're still pushing i mean as we speak they're still pushing in massachusetts they're still pushing connecticut yeah. has fought it off so far um but yeah there's the pushing and there's pushing there's pushing but somehow the you know the left the progressives um have have really been the maybe the best kind of resistors of this in very interesting ways right like the disability rights folks and the nonviolent folks who say we shouldn't have any violence in medicine and the debate over, you know, what constitutes medicine and whether this kind of violence could ever be part of medicine is ongoing. But um, for me, it's been interesting that so far, I mean, uh, California uh, has had, there was just an op-ed in the LA times last year saying we need assisted suicide for people with early stage dementia and whatnot. So there are these pushes coming. Um, But, you know, maybe it's the, it's, it's still the vibrancy of a, of not just libertarianism, but a kind of left libertarianism, but a kind of left social justice focus that, that keeps it from becoming us turning directly into Canada or the Netherlands overnight. I don't know what you think about that, but that's, that's just what I've been musing about. I'd have to think about it, but I I think you have more of a, a, uh, a positive outlook on our culture than I do. I'll have to think of, we'll, we'll have another podcast about, we'll that have another time. podcast. about. Yeah. That. yeah I'm, I'm sure we'll have more. Charlie, how is euthanasia or assisted suicide related to abortion? There's the obvious ways, but yeah. How, what, what's the relation? So first of all, I think it's important for those that criticize pro-lifers as being single issue folks. Um, the fact that Almost every pro-lifer I know is not just interested in abortion, but in euthanasia-assisted suicide just blows that up right away. So let's just say uh, there is no such thing as a single. I've never met a single issue abortion person. Um, And that's because these issues are directly related to each other. I mean, violence, intentional killing, vulnerable populations, um, the skepticism about actual choice, right, rather than structural coercion. But here's here's a I think a very interesting way in which these uh, two are related. 
Um, you know, it's it's the it's the economically vulnerable people and racial minorities who are most against assisted suicide and euthanasia. But they're also economically vulnerable and racial minorities are the ones who feel most coerced into it. Right. Again, economically vulnerable people. We see that in Canada. We see that here, you know, the slippery slope, the thinking that, oh, this is, you know, it's it's typically argued for by the most privileged people in our culture. Right. They they want control over their lives. They know they have control over their lives. This is part of having control over their lives. But um, the economically vulnerable and, 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 and racial minorities who feel the pressure, right? I mean, it's so interesting to think what African-Americans think about end of life issues and about hospice in general. Um, they're very, very skeptical for good reasons, very skeptical about all that stuff. It turns out something's very similar about abortion. Gallup just came out or not came out, just came out, but last year came out with the 2018 to 2021 uh, kind of kind of results of how people think about um, uh, abortion based on uh, essentially social class. They measured under 40,000, 40,000 to 100,000 income, household income, and over 100,000 household income. And wouldn't you know it, the group most likely to be skeptical of abortion and indeed identify as pro-life were those under who made under $40,000 per year in their household. And the, the ones most likely to support abortion were those over 100,000. And I just finished 14 years of teaching in the Bronx at uh, Fordham University. And the Bronx, uh, of course, is one of the most notoriously poor areas in the entire country. They also have a ridiculous abortion rate of, you know, somewhere between 45 and 50% of all pregnancies ending in abortion, which is just horrific and a, and a genocide, right? But what, what do these statistics all put together mean? It means that millions of people over time who are most re, who are most against abortion who are most identified as pro life and anti abortion and abortion skeptical are being pushed to have abortions they don't want to have just as some of the most vulnerable people who are against euthanasia and want nothing to do with um, assisted suicide are structurally pushed into doing that as we saw with Canada and so there are there are a number of connections to make between the two but there's a very powerful one surely it's diabolical that those who are most against the practice right? The economically vulnerable are the ones who are most often pushed to in fact do it, to have abortions they don't want to have and to, and to, to so-called choose assisted suicide they don't want to have either. Yeah. I'd like to push back on you a, a bit on that, maybe get your take because um, you, sure. you mentioned the, you know, those who are, you know, below $40,000 are, you know, they don't support um, assisted suicide and, and, or excuse me, support abortion and those who are above $100,000 $100, a year do. But also, and, and I'm I'm thinking I'm I'm discovering I was having some conversations just this past weekend with some African American leaders here in Philadelphia, and and you know if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but the stats are African Americans are about 14 percent of the population, but have about thirty to thirty five percent of abortions in our That's country. Right. So 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 I'm I'm just how does how does that figure? play into what you just said? Does it, does it counter what you said or, or how does that play into what you said? Well, what I was trying to say, and sorry if I wasn't clear, um, is that this is a population that just as the, one of the main reasons they're against euthanasia assisted suicide is that they feel that they, that they're, a, that they have a relationship with the healthcare system due to, I would say structural, uh, racism and structural injustice over time that treats them as kind of a throwaway population, right? That says, oh, you know, um, you just need to go into hospice right now. And that's one reason why 
African-Americans, again, are disproportionately skeptical of hospice compared to more privileged populations in the culture. Um, and so um, we could imagine, I don't know what the stats are, but we can imagine a scenario where a very similar scenario where African-Americans uh, in fact did enter hospice at higher rates than whites, but that wouldn't be inconsistent with them being against it, right? It'd, be, it'd actually be one of the reasons they're more skeptical of it, right? And so sim something similar, I think, is true of abortion that, again, when you have grinding poverty, when you have intimate partner violence, when you have very little hope for childcare or um, being able to hold a job with the children you already have and whatnot, that creates the kind of structural problems and structural forces which push women to have abortions they don't want to have. And so I think that would help explain why a disparate, wildly disparate, as you, you, just, you just mentioned, a wildly disproportionate number of abortions are had by African-Americans, but also especially when you with African-Americans, it's more complicated. It's, it's less complicated when it comes to people with under $40,000 um, at their household income. But the, the, what I like to compare are African-Americans um, who are Democrats with whites who are Democrats. And there the, the distinction is totally clear. Uh, black Democrats are wildly more skeptical of abortion than our white Democrats. Hmm. Interesting. I got to give a plug to your book. And you can do this any way you want, but talk a bit about the throwaway culture. Oh, yeah. So um, the book before my previous one was titled uh, Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People. And there I try to use the Holy Father's um, uh, image, really, of a throwaway culture as a way of uniting us around resisting many different kinds of practices, including um, hookup culture, including uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia, obviously abortion and infanticide, but also, you know, how we think about immigrants and um, how we think about uh, our the gift of our common home um, and how we think even, I mean, it's, it comes home to roost now as we think about war and about uh, drones and kind of the video game model for how do we think about killing people in war. So it's a lot, but that's that's what that book was trying to do. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to put a link to that uh, in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, you. you can. And and your last one. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Losing our dignity. Losing our dignity. I, I yeah. can picture it. I just I forgot the that's name. Right. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, that's what happens when you get to your 50s. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Changing gears one more time. Charlie, you recently announced that you're leaving Fordham University. You mentioned that a little earlier. mentioned it in the last podcast, actually. You're leaving Fordham University and joining the staff at the Creighton University School of Medicine. So with that, why are you leaving? And, and I don't know a better way to say this other than kind of in Scarecrow's uh, traditional higher education. Why, why are you leaving traditional higher education and moving into medical education? You know, you're not the first person to describe it that way. And the first time, the first time somebody said that, I was like, is that what I'm doing? <laughs> oh yeah, I guess that's what I'm doing. Um, um, I am, I am teaching 20% also at St. Joseph Seminary and teaching moral theology, Catholic social teaching there, but that's just one course a semester. Um, the 80% of my work teaching work will be done with the Creighton University School of Medicine. And, um, you know, I guess the why co comes comes down really to this moment I feel so strongly about for Catholic healthcare. You know, we seem to be, and you and I have discussed this at various points, we seem to be at a turning point now, you know, a kind of hinge point 
um, you know, when it comes to prenatal justice, what we were just talking about, when it comes to um, assisted suicide and euthanasia, when it comes to the embodied differences between men and women, when it comes to how, as we talked about last time, you know, the, the dementia population is going to double in 20 years, going to triple in 30 years. How the heck are we going to deal with that? In my book, Losing Our Dignity, I talk about having like an all hands on deck kind of like we need to get our act together on this. So Catholic healthcare could meet a huge, can, should make a huge difference on all these issues. Um, even just holding on to to a coherent notion of what healthcare is at all <laughs> would be a would be at, in play. It seems to me when you have like one in seven facilities and one in six beds being in a Catholic facility um, in the United States. But but if you don't have a kind of coherent vision of what Catholic healthcare is, you know you you really aren't going to be able to you aren't really going to be able to respond in the way we ought to at this kind of hinge point in history here at least in the United States. And, um, and Creighton, it turns out, as, as, part, as I learned out as part of my recruitment there, the Creighton um, trains the most students in healthcare of any Catholic institution in the United States. So, um, and they just expanded a brand new medical school in Phoenix, Arizona, and they're re- re- rebuilding the one in Omaha. So it's, it, it was just, it just felt like Creighton is on its way. It's doing so many great things already. It's a, it's a hinge moment for Catholic healthcare. I want to try to be a part of that. Lots of challenges there, but uh, lots of opportunities as well. So, mm-hmm. what are the uh, now? Again, this again, this is maybe a, an unfair question because you're you, you've really kind of maybe stuck your big toe into the world of medical education to this point. But what are the similarities? What are the differences you see between again, quote unquote, traditional Catholic higher education and Catholic medical education? Well, one big surprising and frankly maddening thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that is that I at least at first I don't have a lot of control over what I'm teaching. My syllabi are kind of like already figured out, and um, there it turns out there's been a lot of people doing this before me, right? Who've who've thought about these things and have had the courses planned, and and my experience as a as a professor in theology and the liberal arts was I think I went through this as I was trying to wrap my head around what this would be. I think, I don't think there was a class that I didn't create the syllabi from scratch. Like I didn't, Mm -hmm. there was a blank word document in front of me and I just started typing and that was, that became my syllabus, my syllabus for the class. Um, which it's good in a way because, uh, because people have been thinking about this and I'm, I'm, like you said, toe in the water and I've got a lot to learn. Um, and I need, I need to sit and learn, uh, from my colleagues who've been doing this, uh, for a while. But, but I, by the same token, I have, you know, ever since this became a possibility, I've been taking notes and thinking about what my courses would look like. And I was like, already and like, oh, here's your syllabus. I'm like, okay. Um, but, uh, and over time they said it can change and whatnot, but, yeah. but that was, that was. Oh, really you'll change it. Yeah, yeah. You'll definitely um, change it. I guess that another thing I might mention is that um, in my previous context with my colleagues in liberal arts, it, w- it was really a struggle maybe to get. Um, we kind of joke in bioethics, right? That usually they're the people who are really good at the practical stuff suck at the theoretical stuff. And the people who are good at the theoretical stuff suck at the practical, practical stuff. And, um, and there's, I, I, there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> I, I just, I just like to, I'll keep my mouth shut after that, but there is truth there. <laughs> and it's a structural problem within bioethics. And there, I mean, there is a rare person who, um, you know, embodies both, but and at the highest levels, but, um, you know, I've spent the last 
again, 14 years, I think trying to convince colleagues and students that, you know, the practical is, is really something that, um, that needs to, to, you need to think about how things actually work. Uh, and it's not just all about arguments and ideas, but I think now my sense is of the, the kind of students I'll have and maybe some of the colleagues I'll have, it might be the kind of the opposite, right? Where I'm saying, you know, yes, we need to get the practical right. And I have a lot to learn from you, frankly, when it comes to that, because I'm not a clinician, even though I play one as an academic sometimes. But the, but, but maybe one thing I can really show is that the theoretical really does matter, right? That, um, that, that how you answer questions, like even very basic ones, like what is healthcare? What is medicine at all? can have really dramatic impacts on, on the practical as well. Yeah. I would, I would uh, encourage you, and I know you're doing this. I know you're speaking at the, the Catholic Medical Association conference coming up in September. September? I think it's in September. But really get involved with, you know, with the CMA, because a great group. Um, I, I plug them as much as I can. But even like local uh, CMA guilds and get to know doctors. Mm. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a great way to get your whole foot in the, you know, in the water, not just your big toe, but... But yeah, I, I, I think a lot of physicians would really appreciate that, you know, in terms of the, you know, there's the structure of, of medical diagnoses, but then the questions of, well, why are we doing the things we do? What about the ethical challenges and how do we go about, you know, how do we navigate those things? And I think that's where, you know, I think that's a great role that you could play with, with medical students and, and hopefully above and beyond that as well. So anyway, Charlie, I, I forgot to ask you this before, but what is your new position at, uh, at Creighton? You know, we're talking about it already, but what, what, what's the actual position and what are your responsibilities? Well, in some ways, we're still trying to figure it out, but because um, it's <laughs> So a, it is an, an on- academic position. Yes. <laughs> well, I went into it with my family first, right? Like as tr- trying to say, like, I have these responsibilities to my children. We have three older adopted children at home and um, they've been ensconced in their local schools and communities and families here, church, for six years now. And it would really be uprooting for them and really maybe even a disaster for them to kind of move at this point. So, um, and we have a younger three-year-old who's not really as plugged in the ways that that my older kids are. But um, so I kind of went into this discussion saying, can how can we work this out where, you know, I, I hang out at the seminary and teach once a semester, but, you know, I'm, I'm with you guys for the majority of the time and, and I have tenure and that kind of protection. And so we worked out a situation where most years, I don't think it'll be this first year, but most years I'll be flying out to Phoenix to teach the medical students essentially once a month on the average, um, in their, in their medical ethics, uh, courses, which you do that in the winter time. Well, (laughs) I gotta say, uh, the prospect of going out there from, you know, November through, through April was, (laughs) was really, really enticing and actually was really disappointed when they basically, because they said for this first year that, you know, we've had, we've had these shuffles and we're going to ask you to teach mostly online uh, other students like nurse practitioners and future dentists and physical therapists and whatnot. And I, you know, I'm excited for those courses, but I was really looking forward not only to teaching the medical students in person, but yeah, to experience Phoenix um, during those months for sure. Yeah. Well, it'll, it'll happen. And by the way, if you ever can't make it out with me, just give me a call. I'll be, I'll be happy to go out. <laughs> You're coming out. You're coming out. Hey, in this in this new role, how do you seek to uphold and promote Catholic identity in, method, in medical education? That's a huge deal. How how yeah. how, how do you, how do you do that? 
Well, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have changed my jobs, uh, my job to this. I wouldn't have moved in this direction if I didn't think that Creighton, in part because of their pursuit of someone like me at all, was deeply uh, concerned to uphold and promote um, Catholic identity. I, I think again from the from the um, file of being a new guy and a, and a non clinician to pause and listen and see what's going on and the good people that are doing things there already um, is important. But those who are there, two of the leaders um, that I interacted with, Kevin Fitzgerald, SJ, who is the chair of medical humanities there is deeply, he, he come, he left uh, Georgetown to be at a place that was uh, more authentically Catholic and uh, Dean Bo Dunlay, who's um, who runs the show um, is also very, concerned about Catholic identity and mission. And so I'm excited, <laughs> genuinely excited to, to be at a place that, that cares so deeply about its Catholic identity and, and mission in medical education. And, but I think, I think rather than think about what my role might be beyond teaching the courses that need to be taught right away, I need again to kind of sit and listen and, and see what's been going on and figure out how yeah. I fit into all that. Yeah. That's a good thing to do. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. I got to tell you, I, I thought of you a couple of weeks ago. All right. So uh, just for listeners, today is the 16th of May. And two Fridays ago, I think it was the first Friday of May, I was at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Their collegium had a a, um, a, a talk with uh, Dr. Farr Curlin, who I think you probably may be aware of. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Curlin was speaking about the need for greater humanities, including ethics, education, in U.S. medical schools. And I'm wondering if you can comment on how in your new role at Creighton you plan to bring or, or maybe even better enhance such education um, at the Creighton School of Medicine. Yeah, I actually, um, before this uh, interview, I, I emailed both uh, Father Kevin and Dean Bo and said, hey, I'm going to be asked about my job, I think. And <laughs> what should I say? And um, and, uh, and and what, what they said wasn't surprising. I mean, it's part of not only their recruitment of me, but the, you know, who they are as just, you know, in their vocations. They care deeply about making Creighton a school that excels in the human, humanistic dimensions of healthcare. In fact, they said it's just as important at Creighton as excelling in the technical and scientific dimensions. Well, that's good to hear. And uh, again, if you're, if you're going to talk about questions like what is healthcare? Um, should we have violence as part of healthcare? Um, uh, these these are questions that belong in uh, properly speaking as in the humanities, right? That's those are um, those are at least traditionally where we think of those questions being asked. Um, but it doesn't need to even be more traditionally pro life questions. I mean, the increased attention to social determinants of health, I think, point toward you know the humanistic dimensions of healthcare. Um, and so it really is a place that well before I got there had this as their calling card. It was one of the, again, one of the many things uh, that made them attractive, that this is not going to just going to be a place where, you know, you're going to be trained essentially as an organic carpenter or plumber, but as a person who, you know, interacts with other people and, uh, and that means the humanities. Yeah. I have to uh, give a shout out to uh, Fiona from the, uh, Rowan School of Medicine, who I met at the uh, at the Collegium event, where where Dr. Curlin was uh, 
was uh, speaking. She, she came up to me. We had a nice conversation. So Fiona, big uh, shout out to you for that. But one of the things, is, and this is, there's a reason why I bring Fiona up. She's a medical student. And one of the big concerns, Charlie, that we hear at the NCBC in our consult line and in other places from medical students, um, newer medical professionals and, you know, and, and, and residents and fellows and everything else is the question of conscience protection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ability, and, and I'm defining it as the ability to practice medicine in accord with one's medical judgment and one's closely held beliefs, including their religious beliefs. What is Creighton doing in this area? Talk, talk about the practical, as you mentioned before, what's Creighton doing in this area now? And what do you seek to bring to this issue? Well, this is another thing I discussed at length before making the move. And it seems clear to me that Creighton wants to be a serious space for all people, all students of goodwill, all colleagues of goodwill to practice medicine in accord uh, with their closely held beliefs and medical judgments, including their religious beliefs. I mean, you know, and, and, and with given its mission identity as a Catholic school to to make particular space, uh, though by no means exclusive space for traditional Catholics uh, in that regard. Um, Creighton wants to be known, Creighton School of Medicine wants to be known as a place where, again, all those of goodwill can come and be careful, but you know, in particular, um, traditional Catholics or even others with traditional religious beliefs who don't feel welcome, perhaps at other institutions, um, I wrote about this in some detail in my book, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality, the kind of secular, hyper-secularization of, of, of medicine has made it, I don't need to tell you, as, I mean, the, the presumption of your question is that it's made it very difficult for many yep. people. So it's by no means like a Catholic school in the sense of only Catholics get this. I mean, again, all people of goodwill, but we definitely want to make um, serious space available for for those who are more traditional in their religious beliefs to feel comfortable. Yeah. So Fiona, if you're listening, contact Charlie. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Gotta love it. Before we get to your final words of wisdom, Charlie, is, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to be aware of things you're doing? And I, I'm thinking the pillar, um, anything else you want our listeners to know about? I do a weekly Q and a at the, the pillar, which if you don't know about it is a, fantastic, fairly new. I think it's about just over a year old source of news uh, for Catholics, but also in-depth, not just kind of like uh, soundbiting news, but really in-depth reporting and and interesting um, depth-filled pieces. Um, You can get it in your inbox uh, Tuesdays and Fridays, so you don't have to go every day or something like that. You just have the stuff emailed to you. Uh, One of these days, we'll get you a Q&A with you, Joe. I got to be honest, going back to the Tucker Carlson interview, I'm very happy Um, being on on uh, this side of the microphone. This is, I've done a couple of like EWTN News Nightly, you know, nothing like Tucker Carlson, but I I am nervous as anything the entire day. And I'm, as I said, I'm happy to be on this side of the microphone. Okay. It's it's all good. Nobody can say I didn't try, but... um, (laughs) Uh, or anybody listening to this can, can say that I didn't try, but, uh, uh, yeah. So I'm also, I've also, uh, been fortunate enough to be part of new city press. They published my last two books there. Um, they offered me the chance to start my own book series with them. We're calling it the magenta series, which again is kind of resistant to this red blue dichotomy mm-hmm. and also the color bishops wear. So it's a very Catholic series, but it, it's a specific attempt to kind of resist the either or toxic political binary that we kind of live in. Yeah, that's pretty much what's going on with me, I guess. Cool. 
Charlie, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Uh, yesterday's gospel, at least of the day we're recording this, was Christ uh, talking about um, the commandment to love one another as I have loved you. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately. I made, much to my kids' chagrin, I made us talk about this at the dinner table last <laughs> night. And, um, <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know, we just talked about, like, well, what does that mean? Like, is it just kind of this lovey-dovey kind of thing or... You know, we need to be nice to each other or something. Well, that's, of course, not what it means. It's it's a love that um, is unconditional, right? We don't love each other because of what we can get out of it. Though Sometimes that's what my kids said. We had some interesting discussions about that. I won't out any particular kid about the concert, <laughs> but, um You know, it's a love that doesn't expect to gain anything in return, right? It's, it's just following this command that Christ asks of us, including to love our, our enemies. And, uh, you know, it's no secret where Jesus ended up as a result of that. Um, the Focolare, who I'm very involved with, talk about embracing Jesus forsaken as part of what um, dialoguing and engaging with the culture means um, for Christians of all times. But I think in particular our own time with regard to some of these issues that we've discussed um, on this two-part uh, podcast, um, we can expect to be embracing Jesus forsaken if we're going to love one another as, as he has loved us. We're not doing this to get something out of it, right? We're not here to offer a kind of utilitarian or consequentialist calculation about where we might go. We're here to love as Christ loved us, and and that can mean embracing what Jesus had to embrace. And it doesn't mean we don't do it with joy. <laughs> um, I think Pope Francis, one of his great images, he talks about the joy of the stigmata, I think is a beautiful kind of way to think about it. You and I have kind of, I don't know, is it fair to say, try to embody this as we've gone through some horrible things um, with at least some joy, despite the fact that we're talking about horrific things. And and there was this way, you know, uh, that the early the early Christians rejoiced that they found worthy to suffer for the name, right? That they were, that they had to, that they, that they suffered for the gospel. And they found joy in that somehow, that they were, they rejoiced for that. Maybe you know, if this is what we're facing over the next few decades, especially, maybe that's a kind of model we can have as we go into it. Yeah. Yeah. Christian love is willing to go to the other, and it's going to get you to the cross, but there's always the resurrection. That's right. That's right. Charlie Camosi, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. My pleasure. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcast button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.